Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Larry McNabby played basketball in high school. Unfortunately, soon after graduation, his only sibling, an older brother, committed suicide, followed by his father's suicide. Larry was a wild guy with a great sense of humor, but battled alcohol many times throughout his life and in the early 1980s checked himself into rehab. He struggled to maintain relationships and was married four times. Larry became a popular and successful lawyer in Reno, Nevada, defending accused criminals. TV commercials featured him wearing a cowboy hat and riding a horse in the desert, and clients flocked to him. He lived large, buying luxury cars, renting a Learjet, and opened a second office in Las Vegas, where he expanded into personal injury claims. After an intense trial, he stepped away from his law practice for three years, divorced his fourth wife, and joined a New Age spiritual school in Washington. Meanwhile, Laren Sims was born in 1966 and grew up in Florida with her parents and three siblings. She was a cheerleader and model in high school, and although she was smart with an IQ of 140, she quit before graduating. She got married at 18 and by 20 was divorced with two children. Laren set out on a life of crime and was arrested in 1989, 1991, and 1992 for grand theft and stolen property, among other charges. At 25 years old, she was doing time in a Florida prison. Afterwards, she reached out to an old cellmate, Elizabeth Barash, and told her she knew a lawyer that could help her get her out of prison, but she'd need her social security number. Lauren used it to steal her identity, cut off her ankle monitor, and fled to Las Vegas with her daughter, violating her probation. Her son stayed with his father. In 1994, she married Ken Rattlesberger. Soon after, credit card bills arrived, cards that he didn't apply for. Six months later, their marriage imploded, and he was left $30,000 in debt. Elisa didn't skip a beat. She walked into Larry's law office in July 1995, looking for a job, and he hired her on the spot. He was smitten found her wickedly smart and brilliant at business, and within six months, she became his fifth wife. Larry didn't know much about his new wife. She made a point of keeping her answers vague. He certainly had no idea of her criminal past. Elisa moved quickly and separated Larry from his family and friends. In 1998, the Nevada Supreme Court recommended Larry's law firm when it was discovered that an employee had withdrawn almost $75,000 from client accounts to pay bills for the law firm. 
That employee was Elisa. Larry's longtime friend, Fred Atchison, a fellow lawyer, suggested he distance himself from Elisa, perhaps get a divorce. But instead, Larry distanced himself from Nevada and moved to Sacramento, California with Elisa. They rented a house in the upscale neighborhood of Woodbridge. Larry repeated his cowboy TV ads in California, and soon his new firm was a success. Elisa's 17-year-old daughter worked at the office, along with Sarah Dutra, a fourth-year art major at California State University who had answered a help-wanted ad. Sarah had finished in the top 10% of her class in high school and had just returned from studying art in Italy. Sarah and Elisa hit it off and quickly became best friends. Larry indulged Elisa's love of horses and spent a lot of money on show horses. He liked the spotlight and would lead his unsaddled stallion into the ring before the judges. The couple had now been married six years, and Elisa no longer wanted a husband. Instead of fleeing like she usually did when her deception had run its course, she devised a plan to get rid of Larry, but keep his money. Over the next year, Elisa told Sarah that Larry was abusing drugs and that he'd beat and raped her. None of it was true, but Sarah didn't know that. In the summer of 2000, a client Larry was representing received a $100,000 settlement. The insurance company sent the check to the law firm, but Elisa didn't notify the clients that the check arrived. Instead, she quietly cashed it, kept the money, and made plans with Sarah to poison Larry at an upcoming horse show in Los Angeles. On September 10th, Larry and Elisa drove to the horse show in Los Angeles. RecordNet reported that Sarah flew in later, and the two women snuck over to where the horse trainer stored the horse tranquilizer and stole it. Elisa poured it into the water bottle and gave it to Larry. Larry's show horse was doing well, but he wasn't. Not feeling well, he and Elisa retired to their hotel room and Sarah headed home. Laying on the bed, withering in pain, Larry wasn't dying fast enough for Elisa. His blood pressure had dropped, his breathing became slow and shallow, and his heartbeat slowed down, but it kept on beating. She called Sarah and asked her to catch the 9 p.m. flight back to Los Angeles. As Larry slept, Elisa poured the horse tranquilizer directly into his mouth. The next morning, the world changed forever with the terrorist attacks on New York City, Washington, D.C., and the Pentagon in Virginia. Sarah was watching it on TV when Elisa asked her to rent a wheelchair and purchase two shovels. She watched Elisa help Larry get his wilted body into the wheelchair his arms swung chaotically as he was wheeled to the truck. Sarah got behind the wheel and they headed north for four hours to Yosemite National Park to bury Larry, who was now sprawled out on the back seat. Sarah stopped the truck, got out, and dug a hole. But Larry 
wasn't dead. They turned the truck around and drove back to their home in Woodbridge. Sarah went to sleep on the sofa downstairs. Upstairs, Larry laid on the floor, and Elisa waited. Eventually, he went into a coma, and by morning, was dead. Larry was 52. Elisa woke up Sarah. They rolled his body onto a sheet and wrapped it in duct tape. They carried his lifeless body to the garage. There, standing against the wall, was an extra fridge. Elisa ordered Sarah to remove the shells, and they stuffed Larry inside. The Tampa Bay Times reported that when rigor mortis set in and Larry's body stiffened, it forced the door open, so the women wrapped duct tape around the fridge to hold it shut. The day after Larry was murdered, his wife gave away his belongings, his boots, his golf clubs, a Rolex watch, and told people Larry had left her or gone to rehab. Then she began selling off big-ticket items, furniture, his white Ford pickup truck, the show horses, and amassed $500,000. Elisa was planning her next move. The chameleon who had used over 38 aliases was a master at changing her appearance. She dyed her hair black and cut it short, lost 30 pounds, leased a sporty red jaguar, and bought Sarah a $19,000 BMW. Elisa returned to work and hired a new employee who worked alongside her daughter and Sarah, who practiced forging Larry's signature. The new employee noticed that the women gave callers various reasons why Larry wasn't in the office. She grew suspicious and at the end of November reported him missing to police. Detectives investigated and tried to talk to Elisa, but she managed to elude them. In December, Larry's body was removed from the cold, dark fridge and loaded into a car. Elisa and Sarah drove eight hours to Las Vegas with plans to bury Larry in the desert. But the desert isn't warm in December, where the average temperature hovers around 50 degrees Fahrenheit. They removed the shovels from the car and discovered the ground was hard. They returned home, and Larry was put back in the fridge. A few weeks later, Elisa made another attempt to bury him. This time, Sarah refused to help, but instructed Elisa to remove his clothes to ensure her DNA wouldn't be found. Elisa loaded Larry into her Jaguar and drove only 15 miles from their home to a vineyard in San Joaquin County. The rain was coming down as she grabbed a shovel and dug a shallow grave in the mud. She cut off most of his clothes and rolled his body, wearing only a t-shirt and boxer shorts, into the grave. On the way home, she placed his clothes in plastic bags and discarded them in numerous dumpsters. Then she called a friend of Larry's and hired his company to remove the fridge from the garage. The noose was starting to tighten. The clients with the missing insurance check filed a complaint, alleging that their signatures were forged and Larry's firm had cashed the check. 
and when Larry's 25-year-old son and 33-year-old daughter tried to reach him for his birthday just before Christmas, Elisa told them he was out of town golfing. A few weeks later, Larry's son reported his father missing. Elisa filled a horse trailer with their remaining belongings and arranged to have it shipped to Arizona and fled in her Jaguar with her daughter, who thought they were on the run because her mother had violated her probation in Florida. The Modesto Bee reported that the two headed east. They hid in homeless shelters in Mississippi, parking the Jaguar around the corner. Elisa changed her name to Shane Yavaroni. Chip soon came in that she'd been spotted in Jackson and Biloxi, so they fled further east and to the small town of Destin in Florida. Meanwhile, back in California, Larry's TV commercials were still running, but no one was answering the phone. On February 5, 2002, employees working in a vineyard in San Joaquin County discovered a leg bone poking up out of the dirt. A forensic anthropologist determined the body had likely been buried for five or six weeks. Larry was identified by his fingerprints, and detectives wondered why his wife had never reported him missing. They visited Larry's home and discovered that Lisa and her daughter had fled weeks earlier. Their investigation revealed that no one had seen Larry since the horse show in September, and they wondered where had he been the months before he was found buried in the mud. The anthropologist surmised that his body must have been refrigerated. In Florida, Laren wrangled her way into a new relationship with a man who gave her the keys to his condo. He got her a job waiting tables at an upscale restaurant where lawyers liked to eat. It wasn't long before one of them offered her a job. On Friday, March 1st, the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department issued an arrest warrant for Lisa on suspicion of first-degree murder with a special circumstance of financial gain, which could result in the death penalty. Three days later, the FBI joined in and issued a federal warrant for her arrest. At Larry's autopsy, it was determined that he had died from the horse tranquilizer that he drank. Traces of it were also found in his hair, which pointed to the possibility that he had been poisoned over a period of months. Police tracked down the horse trailer. Inside, they found numerous fingerprints and social security numbers, but had no idea which ones belonged to Elisa, if any. Then they tracked down the fridge used to hide Larry. Two weeks later, investigators got a break when they visited Elisa's former cellmate Elizabeth Barash in Florida and learned her true identity. They were able to match Laren's fingerprints on file to those found in the horse trailer. The next day, the man in Florida that Laren had befriended discovered unauthorized charges on his credit card and kicked her out. Then he called the law office where she worked and informed them. They checked her social security number on file and discovered it didn't belong to her. They recorded the vehicle identification number on her Jaguar 
and called police. Meanwhile, Laren left the office for lunch and never returned. Police swooped in and missed her by an hour. She spent the night with another man she knew. She woke up early, stole his truck, and emptied his wallet. Laren and her daughter fled north, heading for South Carolina, but her daughter was tired of running and asked her mother to return to Destin. In a surprise move, she turned the truck around and headed back. The Los Angeles Times reported that Laren dropped her daughter off with relatives and dumped the stolen pickup truck in the parking lot of his supermarket and walked away. She hadn't gone far when a sheriff's deputy spotted her. When the officer approached, she didn't resist. And she told him, I'm the one you're looking for. Laren left a note for her daughter in the truck. In it, she encouraged her to live a life better than she had. And said, I have to end my life because I have done such a bad job with it. When California detective Javier Ramos flew to Florida to interview Laren, he did not find her beautiful and charming. Instead, he saw a woman who looked tired and worn out. Laren hand wrote a three-page confession and implicated Sarah, saying, We murdered him. Of course I should spend the rest of my life in prison. Sarah should too. That same day, Larry was buried again this time in a cemetery in Reno. Sarah was arrested and charged as an accomplice in first-degree murder. Both women were headed to trial. Laren was housed in the medical ward, segregated from the other prisoners due to her fame. She sat alone in a 9 by 11 foot cell in the early morning hours of April 30th, she tore her pillowcase into strips and braided a rope, slipped it through a grate in the ceiling, and hung herself. Jail staff spotted her feet dangling in the air, and she was taken to the local hospital, where her family indicated that they did not wish for her to be resuscitated, and left her alone to die. Laren was 36. Laren's daughter went to live with her grandparents, and Sarah went on trial. In order to avoid a hung jury, they found her guilty on the lesser charge of manslaughter, and she was sentenced to 11 years. At 4.30 a.m. on a warm summer morning in 2011, Sarah walked out of prison. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Tom and Jackie Hawks. They were a couple in love who worked hard and retired early to travel the sea on their yacht. Three years later, their dream turned into a nightmare when they were tied to its anchor and thrown overboard. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, 
we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>